Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. I'd kind of like to start today with a question for you. I mean, how many of you out there are into gardening? How many of you could see yourself maybe down the line getting into it? It's a wholesome pursuit, right? It's satisfying on a number of different levels. Well, here's the next question. How would you feel about this? The plants that you are taking care of or growing, you know, the success or failure in doing so means that that particular plant species is either going to remain here on planet Earth or it's gone forever. I don't know about you, but my feelings of pleasure in this little thought exercise were instantly erased with a spike in stress. Well, that is kind of what we're going to get into today. I've got this excellent, excellent guest, this world-renowned horticulturalist who works at one of the most extensive and important botanical gardens in the world. As far as this conversation goes, we get into a bunch of things. You know, of course, you know what his day-to-day -day looks like as far as being a horticulturalist. Beyond that, you'll hear his thoughts on climate change and how, coincidentally, our fight against it may actually challenge our abilities to preserve plant species moving forward. And you'll also most definitely get a feel for his passion as far as how he really devotes himself to the preservation of plant life and also you'll hear about the lengths that he goes to in order to preserve it, even if that means, you know, putting his own life at risk at times. And we'll even get a look into the world of discovery and learn just how nuanced and, and layered that word is within the context of announcing new plant and animal findings. So let me more formally introduce him to you and we'll get started. Carlos Magdalena is a science and horticultural researcher in the tropical nursery at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in the United Kingdom. And Carlos is also a world-renowned water lily expert, having prevented the extinction of the world's smallest water lily, as well as discovering the world's largest in 2020. Clearly, Carlos is not your average botanical horticulturist or academic. Outside of what I just mentioned is 2018 book release, The Plant Messiah, Adventures in Search of the World's Rarest Species, solidifies this point. A work which The Economist dubbed as impressive, gripping, and important. In essence, it's an account of one man's drive to save incredible species of plants from destruction, thieving, and in some cases, extinction. Now, Carlos is renowned for his passion, unique skills as a plant propagator, and devotion to saving the world's rarest plants. His mission has taken him to the most remote and dangerous parts of the world, from the mountains of Peru to isolated Indian Ocean islands to the deepest Australian outback in search of the rarest exotic species. Back in the tropical nursery at Kew, he uses pioneering left-field techniques to help them grow and ultimately rescue them from being lost forever. So in noting all of this, here's my conversation with Carlos Magdalena. It's an absolute honor to welcome you to the program. Yeah, how are you doing? Fine, fine. Thank you very much for giving me this chance of. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited for this for plenty of reasons. But uh, you know, maybe we just jump right into it. I do have the first segment lined up here. Uh, something called coloring Wikipedia, and as my listeners would know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition of what the guest does. Um, sometimes they're industry. So with that in mind, I do have you down here for horticulture, and uh, let me read that off. Here we go, horticulture. Horticulture is the branch of agriculture that deals with the art, science, technology, and business of plant cultivation. It includes the cultivation of fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, herbs, sprouts, mushrooms, algae, flowers, seaweed, and non-food crops, such as grass and ornamental trees and plants. It also includes plant conservation, landscape restoration, landscape and garden design, construction and maintenance in agriculture, ornamental trees, and lawns. There it is. I feel like Wikipedia got a bit lazy there and just decided to list off a bunch of things. But uh, what, what do you think of that first take? I will say that they maybe miss a little bit of the legal sides of it because when you apply pesticides, the amount of environmental regulations, safety precautions that you have to have, the risk and the mayhem that you can cause. So, so basically, you're a bit of a toxic waste spill kit controller too. You need to know. 
a lot of procedures and things. You also could be a horticulturist petrol head when we are talking about ride-on mowers, tractors, cranes, and all these things. You can also be somebody connecting yourself with the universe and the biodiversity via permaculture and environmentally pesticide-free ways of feeding the world. This just a total universe, basically, rather than a discipline, it seems to me, which is actually a lens passed through whatever human needs are, because if you think about it, is basically an actually about growing plants, and plants are the reason why carbon dioxide is being fixed, why there is oxygen to breathe, why we eat, why the planet rocks, and then just understanding that is also part of horticulture, or, or at least horticultural science, if that makes sense. Medicines, you name it, and perhaps you don't, you don't, Realize that even myself when I am doing it, if that makes sense. So, so I always say, though, that anybody which says that knows everything about horticulture is somebody not to be trusted because it's, it's absolutely impossible. It gets so wide that once you take an avenue, you have to start ignoring some of the other ones, if that makes sense. I, I, I like that point. I mean, sometimes these definitions, they're, they're very, very academic and they're quite dry, but the points that you were just sort of adding, sort of adding there, you know, of, of this bigger picture and how we fit into it, how it fits in, like the, the horticulture of the plants themselves fit into this natural world and how we interact. And, and, and notions such as that, I think, for this type of discussion is really interesting. And I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of it today. As far as, I guess, the definition and your work at Q, you know, which elements would you say most closely align with the work that you're doing? Well, the difference of a place like you with maybe a recreational park or another garden or, or, or the idea of what you have in a garden will be no doubt the science. It's part of the definition of what a botanic garden is. Then science traditionally was mostly focused on taxonomy and agriculture because we must not forget that uh, civilizations have always relied doesn't matter where or how they arise, they always rely on some sort of crop and way of managing and exploiting the environment they have around it. So besides the horticulture is not being known as perhaps very powerful people, they are at the very base of civilization. And this is so often ignored. I guess that you could define civilization by architecture, horticulture. And language, perhaps. Britain language, maybe. I don't know. I am not an expert on the topic, but I think it's very easy to see that those things will be very tied on the on the cradle of what civilization is. And one of the last evolutions that everybody maybe will think positively about it was a green revolution uh, in which we increase the ways that we could feed the world, isn't it? Which means that many people got lifted out of poverty and many masses stop dying of famine. But then this is very easily, um, it's very easy to obviate this, and I do it every day. I am not going around thinking this is what I do. Right, right, right. I just get absorbed by it. Whatever of the aspects that you mentioned has, they very easily, it's very easily being drifted into an arty mode or into a science mode or into a, I'm going to solve a problem or I'm going to grow something that nobody else is growing or I'm going to have bigger tomatoes and more often in my garden. If that makes sense, it's very easy to see. But in Kew Gardens, it's quite funny that very often people tell me, so what do you do? What would be a typical day for you? Maybe that, that's... Exactly. I also like, ah, how are you going to explain this? Because basically, in my role in Kew Gardens, even though it's a science, my role is actually growing plants. But then in order to grow plants... You have several duties that you have to do, including maybe watering plants. We water every single plant at Kew Gardens by hand, basically with a hose, but we decide every single plant, if in, in, not in the whole garden, but in the nursery where I grow, where are contained by plants where they are not exposed to rain. We have to decide this every morning. So it's a little bit of being a waiter for maybe in each zone for like half an hour to 40 minutes and decide who has a problem, who's happy, who's, who's sad, who needs a drink. And what's the problem with this guy? As you just go sit and at the end of the day, you don't dedicate so much time to each one every day. You have to do many in one time. 
But then we are also an education facility because we have students of horticulture, which I was one many years ago. And then obviously there is a, a didactic side to it. And you provide sometimes training, sometimes students come with the most crazy why the chicken cross the road question, and then uh, you have to come up with an answer, and then also getting them enthused by it and not too frustrated, but also making sure that they are also doing what they need to do. So there is a human element and an educational element. Then on the top of this, you maybe found yourself in the top of a ladder trying to fix some issue, which is maybe not so high up in the ground, or maybe trying to, to deal with some sort of pest. But also, this is 2023, and you are a ping, away in our sap or somebody ruining your day with like, I really need this, or an email, or a phone call, or you name it, and then plans may change. And then uh, it's not unusual that I have to maybe have to deal with a press request because somebody wants to make an interview or some scientist needs a sample of a plant or somebody is considering to start researching something and is exploring possibilities with you or suddenly there is a fire alarm and you have to vacate the building. Oh, so basically, a lot going on. Um, yeah, at least on this, what? sorry to interject there, but I mean, at least on this program, and it comes up time and time again, is, is this, this notion of the, the more responsibilities that you have, sure, it can be stressful at times, but also to the, the levels of satisfaction also tend to go up, you know, having your hand in a few different things consistently, and maybe not having that structured, completely structured routine is quite helpful for a lot of people, ultimately, like when they sit back and reflect on it. When they're in the moment, it can be challenging, as I noted. But uh, that's something I hear weekly on in, within the segment, each and every guest that comes on. Well, maybe we could actually slide into a new segment here, Carlos, something called Pathways. And, you know, I, off the top, I'd lightly introduce to listeners, you know, much of what you do and Maybe we could return to your, your past a little bit. You know, I understand that you, you grew up within Spain and, uh, you know, you certainly made your way across. And to this point now, Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, maybe you could shed uh, some light on that story, briefly at least. Yeah, well, I'm from Asturias, Spain, which is in the north coast of Spain. And when I say Spain, everybody will identify me with um, a very kind of dry place with crickets in the countryside. And my mother maybe is a folkloric Spanish lady with castanets and my father does bullfighting. Well, far from that is the closest place I will probably see in Europe will be something like Wales or Northwest okay. Ireland. Very rainy, backpack playing, super mega green, super cloudy, misty and mystic at the same time, uh, and a total anomaly on, on Spain. A lot of mountains, small space, but like a labyrinth of different micro walls and valleys. And I think this was quite interesting that there was in a town which was very industrialized, uh, with lots of factories and metal melting and charcoal and you name it. And, but maybe 20 kilometers away, you could maybe stay in a forest where there is the, one of the few large populations of wild wolf and bear and golden eagles and salmons still going mm. up the rivers. So as a kid, I was forced to understand both. If that yeah. makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. I was in a countryside boy 100% full-time, but sometimes I will be maybe off the grid for one or two days. On a kind of also farmer, rural society from northwest Spain, a country which didn't have the first revolution. And my mom was raised without electricity. Look at the generation gap we are talking in here. And now I live in London, in a place which has millions of visitors. So that's, the contrast there is, yeah. But I think all of this was important for my development too. Yeah. Well, was it, it sorry, sorry to interrupt here. I mean, being based here within the countryside, you know, at that point in your life, and seeing this all around you, you know, having access to all of this, was this attraction to plants like there immediately? Or was it something that just, you know, gradually sort of came about? It was more later. I think as a kid, I was uh, way more attracted to the animals. It was uh, to have some empathy with them. They have two eyes and they are making eye contact, so therefore they are seeing me. But with plants, it looks like a sort of, well, decoration in the studio in the background, isn't it? That, that's the that yeah, sense. Yeah. And then if you plant a seed, you look at it, and you can look at it, and you can look at it, <laughs> and tomorrow, and the day after, and nothing happens. This is totally pointless, isn't it? 
But then when you grow with one seed and then you harvest and then you collect some beans and then you cook them and then you eat them, in there you have been seeing a cycle. And then when you plant a seed next time of the same thing, you know that it has a pattern and a behavior. But anytime you do it, you learn something else. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's maybe even like a maturity thing as a child. You know, you, you're absorbed by all these things around you. And like you said, I mean, like, animals and whatnot being a little bit more accessible probably but as you grow older as you mature you start to understand the world a little bit more around you and you can start to see wonder in it in a different respect i guess i, I gave you an example which i read not so long ago uh, there was a, a paper that they were studying there is a, a type of tree in australia which makes small fruits which are like berries and inside those fruits there are some seeds and then the emus start eating as they walk in the buses. So then they get different fruits from different plants, which contain different genetic mixes of the tree. And then maybe six, seven kilometers away, they will poop. And then uh, the fruit is programmed so that uh, the manure at the midday of the Australian sun is going to reach 42 degrees. And at that point, they explode. Boom, 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 boom. And then they send the seeds in a random way, mixing all this genetic diversity uh, from all these trees dispersing it, but it doesn't end up in that. Uh, the seeds tend to get laid in the ground and they have something we call an aril, which is like a ring of some food that an ant will come pick it and then plant it underground, even further away from this place and even in a more random way. And usually uh, ant nests are full of ant fertilizer and poop and things and the soil has been broken already because it contains oil. It's a perfect spot. Now, the question here is, we will always see, because we see the animal, that is the emu using these fruits. But the reality is, here is a plant using two species of animals that they don't really know what they are doing and that they have no choice but do that. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's utterly fascinating. And I think, intellectually speaking, as you dive into that deeper and deeper, it's probably a bottomless pit of, of finding things like that out and, and, and constantly being amazed by the world around you. Where I could see this, this maybe passion for somebody, you know, within that world for it to, you know, pardon the pun here, but blossom, you know, truly, truly blossom that that inner drive to, to try to find out more about all of this. And, and I'm guessing eventually that's yes. probably what brought you to, you know, London and to, to Q and, and the opportunity there to, to really explore all of that. Because then uh, basically, you know, then at some point in that I decided that I want to to work in something with natural science and with environment. Interestingly, for example, it made me realize that jumping to England will be less of a change of a landscape than going to Spain. So if I am going to be uprooted from my close environment, maybe I can keep that one and also I can learn a different language, which may be, may be open to different gateways. And actually, London was a really good call, I think, in my, in my case, because it's a little bit of the cradle of most famous natural scientists from, you know, like Kew Gardens and other and all the other kinds of horticultural and natural science facilities which are around. And then, interestingly, I realized that I could use the horticultural card in a professional way, in a very unsuspicious way. So I started working as a head sommelier in a five-star hotel. Kind of, interestingly, the hotel was had a historic garden. And then from there, I went visiting different places. And one day I work in Kew Gardens. And basically, it's this immediate feeling of like, wow, this is where I belong, really. I don't know how, but I just know that I have to get there. I, I think and I, I read, think you, sorry to interrupt you. I think I read somewhere yeah. that when you did get to Kew, you you've, you had that the, the, that moment where like, yeah, this is where I belong. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but I think you shared that with somebody, workers there or people like, you need me. Well, like, I think that's what you said. Like basically, you, you need me here. You, I mean, you don't know why right now, but you're, you're going to need me. Historic with this, which is, is kind of like... Um, it's, a, it's amazing how it happened because I visited this, I have this thingy, and I was going back in the tube uh, because I wasn't living in this area and thinking on ways of, you know, I have to come back here and to find a way I need to check. And, and on the days there wasn't, it was, even though it was 2003, I don't think we rely so much on entertainment on the, on the smartphones, you know. So there will be newspapers hanging around in the tube, many more than there are now. And then I just grab one and page four, there is this article about a plant that there is only one and no one can get seeds. 
antisemita de Comestín. Han hecho Kew Gardens, han hecho The Park House, han hecho. I didn't see this run. Oh, well, now I have a reason to come back, don't I? And then I was doing this, and that, that story really got me. Imagine that you are the last specimen of your species, and that you cannot reproduce yourself, but that we can clone you, taking like we cut one finger and we put it there in the fridge, and then I open tomorrow and there is another you. And then it's like, hello, it's me. I cannot reproduce myself, but I have been cloned again. Uh, so basically, it totally got me. If that makes sense, that is an enemy. And then you cannot help but wonder why they cannot get to see it. Yeah, yeah, isn't that That's funny? That isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, I wonder if, why, why they don't do this or why they don't do that. And I go like, I have to come back. So I come back next, next week and I went to see this plan and I was there and I'm thinking like this thing evolved for millions of years and now it's here sitting in front of me and, and he's going to go unless we clone it and he's going to be living always in a glass box. Amazing. And then suddenly I read, oh, there is a school of heart and there is this training on key diploma in some interpretation. I was like, really? So with uh, not having much of an appointment or anything, I look in the map and I found where the school of horticulture was and I kind of sneak myself in. And I was like, basically, you know, I know that you don't have much time, but this is very simple. I want to, you know, summarize it for you. Uh, you don't know this, but this place needs me and I am totally sure that I need this place. So this is very simple, and to save everybody's time, it's very simple. You tell me what I have to do to work in here, and I go, oh, I do it. And you know, the guy kind of like laughing. It happens to be the principal of the school, and he says that of all the crazy people, random crazy people <laughs> that have kind of like come up with things, with crazy things, I have been the funniest year. <laughs> and then uh, he was out? like, yeah. yeah, and he was like, I don't want to challenge this, but I have an idea, you know, like there is this place, uh, and then we take people that works and they don't get paid. But if you are as good as you say you are, I am sure they will hire you, you know? So then it's like, where would you want to work in the garden? And I say, well, I really like tropical plants. And I just think this plant. So they told me like, well, actually it does a very good news because he, he told me that one of the main persons which will be hiring people is based there and that there is not so many people wanting to grow tropical plants, which I was shocked. Also, I seen this tropical nursery from afar, you know, from the fence, because it's private public. And I, I was like, you know, like... <laughs> That's where I should be. I need to be there. Now, you know, like, I really want to... Yeah, I really want to know what is behind this glass, and I really... That place must be amazing. So then I, like, two weeks later, I land up there, and then they told me, this is going to be your song. I walk through the song, and there is that plant, which is the only other location in the whole Kew Gardens where they have it. And then I start getting obsessed and obsessed and obsessed and obsessed and obsessed. And then I realized that, you know, it, blo it blooms pretty much every day. So my approach to it was like, every day I can try something different. And everybody was telling me, nah, it cannot be done. Why? Well, I don't know. But then they say it cannot be done. And then, why? Oh, very important people look at it. Who, who is this? A couple of people. And what they look at? This. Well, I don't know. I think the problem is, we don't know why we cannot get seeds. Not that... The problem is that we cannot get seeds. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then, uh, after that, they offered me a, a small uh, temporary contract while I was applying for studying the key diploma. And then about six months later, even though I wasn't working with that plant, after work, I was going to there and playing with the flowers. Boom. Mm. One fruit. Wow. Wow. That must have been such a moment. Yes. I mean, yes, it was, it really kind of like, you think that you're hallucinating, like because this is not possible. But I am seeing it. But then it's not possible. Unless I realize how everybody got ingrained into the negatives of the negative economics of it. Oh yeah, there is a fruit, but it's not going to have seeds. Well, why you're saying that? You know the problem is that before there wasn't a fruit. Now there is a fruit. I usually will contain seeds. Well, no. And then when there was seeds, well. That doesn't mean that they are going to germinate. Does that yeah, mean yeah, it's closing these doors before, you know, without even attempting to open yeah. them and, and ignoring any type of lateral thought towards it, it sounds like. It, it's easy to get caught in exactly. cycles, I suppose, but it, it's interesting to hear that it, it's also an issue within the it, world of science. It is. Well, actually, it's very interesting. Uh, science is about the opposite. It's about saying, no, things are not like this. That, that would be the perception, at least, right? That's what kind of strikes me here is, is you know, 
interesting that sometimes that world as well falls prey to, to these issues of... I mean, obviously, you cannot be here denying a scientific fast just by the sake of it. But what I will say is that if a scientist or somebody interested in science, you observe something that really doesn't fit the narrative, congratulations, man, you are so lucky. That's the same sense because there is only two possibilities coming out of this. One is you you just realize, discover, or find out some more light into a topic, or in the process of proving yourself wrong, you are going to learn lots of stuff that you didn't know because if you know it, you wouldn't have that conclusion. So it's always it's always positive the outcome, but in my opinion, science is actually about challenging the status quo rather than complying with it. Obviously, it cannot be done in a gratuitous way. Like, I want to challenge the status quo for the sake of it. But it's a science, the core of a science is the whole domini. I make a question. Does that, does that make sense? Because if something that characterizes science is actually that on the light of new evidence, there is no dogma, there is no mantras, we just eat our own words and put it right. If that makes sense, that is, that is the thing. Obviously, that doesn't mean that you can do everything if you put yourself around it. No, but actually, it's the only way of doing something. If that makes sense, the only way of doing something done is actually trying it and it's actually trying to push the envelope another step. And then if the envelope doesn't go, look for another crack where you can push it. But don't assume that there is no envelopes, there is no cracks, and there is no walls. But the very worst is just that you cannot put it through. Yeah, well, it strikes me, I mean, in this conversation already, that that you had this sort of vision or this this mindset towards it all of challenging when appropriate and, and looking at things from different angles. And probably, you know, that that's played a big role in a lot of your success and what you've accomplished within your career to this point, it would seem. And with that in mind, too, maybe we, we could shift in here to a new, new segment, uh, Q&A Discovery. We can just continue this back and forth, actually. And uh, again, in, in researching for this talk, I did come across a few articles, well, several articles about you and your work. And one of them, I'm going to be honest here, had me a little bit conflicted. And it, it had to do with a lot of the information. Nothing with you, per se, but the information that was shared there. And I'm just going to read this off for, for listeners and for you to, to jog your memory. And it was noted that, uh, you know, approximately 20,000 plant species are being cared for within, you know, Q, of which around 300 have already disappeared within the wild. Each glasshouse at Q, it has its own climate, temperature, and humidity levels, all of which are fully run by computers. And there are roughly 80,000 endangered plants worldwide. I mean, after reading this article, I had like these, these, these emotions, you know, kind of hope, wonder, frustration, elation, despair, like all of these within a few nanoseconds, much to, to what I was just reading off, things like that. Um, so my question here is like, how do you within your world compartmentalize? How do you handle all of that? Because there's certainly reasons for optimism. There's reasons for frustration. There's, there's reasons for, for a lot of these different emotions. But as somebody so deeply embedded within it, how, how do you feel about all of these things and how do you deal with it? It's very frustrating, I must say, uh, because there is so much stuff to do in this field and there is so much, so many things at stake in here that, you know, um, basically just because I managed to reproduce a couple of plants here and another one there and then cultivate a few here and that does nothing, nothing on the, on the big narrative. Now, the thing that I am probably most proud of is that Sometimes I was told I have inspired some children or some young people to try to get into this. Also because I didn't mention all of this, I also have all these influencers when I was a kid. And I'm not going to compare myself to this, but to them because I am from, from you know, paying any close to what they were. But it's, it's kind of digital generational sense a little bit, you know, of like an adult managed to explain me how some things work and then I got enthused by it and then I would make a career and then now I have sometimes young people or, or even people which is all that changes career tell me that either they read my book or they write the news about something I did and then they start going through the wormhole and now they are trying to pursue this. You know, when I was a kid there was people like uh, the proto-influencers such as Cousteau, um, BBC Life, other people, Carl Sagan, all these people and I think we really Shaped me a lot, all these people, you know. Um, so, so, so that gives you a little bit of hope. But 
Interestingly, Nathan, you mentioned that there is 20,000 species of plants in Q. It's interesting because England is one country which has a very uh, a small flora, if you like. They don't have many species. But in cultivation, probably they have more than anybody else's. You combine Edinburgh Botanic Gardens, Q Gardens, other historic gardens, things that they yeah. have been Yeah, yeah. Already. I mean, like that, that, that strikes me. It's amazing. It's amazing that we have evolved to this point where we can do these types of things, like control these climates where we can grow these plants that should not yes. otherwise be on with, you know, within the soil there and that, that, that area, that, that, that geographic region. And yet we're able to do this. And, and in the same breath, we're having all these issues exactly. where we're destroying things and, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's all a bit crazy. And England, for example, your first feeling will be that it's a cold country, so why they grow tropical plants? Well, interestingly, they can be grown very well and in a way that very other few countries could do, because which was the point I want to make. It's interesting how a cool country is good to grow plants because you have that one for free, the cold, and heating things is quite easy, but chilling things, it is not, especially if they have to be exposed to solar light, meaning that is a big lesson for what is to come with climate change. If that makes sense, we are very easily heating the homes, but when it comes down to cool out the whole biosphere, we don't even know where to start. So that in itself is a lesson for understanding what is coming out there. You know, I am relying on a cool temperature country in which putting sunglasses and heating regulates temperature perfectly because places like, for example, Sevilla, in South Spain, when the thermometer outside registers 52 degrees, there is a massive range of plants that you cannot really grow, including the tropicals, because in the equator they hardly ever are exposed above 32 degrees. That, 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 does that make sense? So this is a, the thing that this is where we are going, and that no Greta, no Greta Thunberg being young or uh, Attenborough being 90 years old have managed to put a break on, isn't it? Uh, so when we say 80,000 plant species are threatened with extinction, that is assuming that we don't hit the cliff of climate change, you know, because otherwise we are going to be left with very, very, very little plant species that we can grow. Not only just to keep the biosphere working and absorbing carbon dioxide and producing oxygen, but just to feed ourselves. And then if you work in horticulture also, I think you... You build up an appreciation for resources too, you know, the amount of water that you you do, the amount of heat that sometimes you have to do, how reliant you may be on, on fossil fuel-based pesticides, on fossil fuel-based uh, fertilizers, and how some things that we take from granted, like the CO2 that they exhale, makes a difference to a plant crop. Yeah, I mean, of- it's really interesting perspectives here. I mean, I, I, ones that I don't think... I know myself would not have considered necessarily in that line of work and what you're doing, but basically a microcosm of the, the world that's going on out there and, and, and shadowing what maybe is going to be coming or some of these issues that, that we're facing. And at that point that you raise there, I mean, the reliance on fossil fuels yeah. and, and whatnot and for continuing yeah. this. I mean, yeah, yeah. Really, really, really yeah, because there is, there is this thing which is really consult controversial, but it's, it's a big truth. Like, for example, uh, we talk about uh, veganism and going vegetarian because one of the reasons, apart of animal suffering, is climate change. But then it's interesting how the only alternative to uh, fossil fuel-based fertilizers and fossil fuel-based pesticides come from petrol. And we cannot stop climate change without stopping the reliance on it. And the alternatives include biopest, which includes using animals, and perhaps for fertilizer, we will need manure. My God, how do we make sense out of all of this? Yeah. Th- th- does that make sense? Yeah. How we fight this with everybody? And where do we find the balance? And how do we press accelerator of what we can really do rather than the break of what you cannot do? If that makes sense? It, mostly because it's always going to be more successful. So I don't know. I guess that, uh, fun enough, uh, you know, the Buddha got illuminated looking to a lotus or so sitting under a tree. So we can only hope yeah, that yeah. we all have the same. If that makes sense? Sometimes that contemplative thing of how does this world, where does it come from? Where, it, where 
what I am going, where I am coming, and why I am here. Since that is, traditionally seems to have been working much better looking at a plant. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting in that sense too. I mean, like that 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 world would seemingly pull you into the moment of just being here, being now. You know, watering this particular plant, watching it grow, seeing the cycles of growth and whatnot. So bring you into the present, but then also too, like all at the same time, perhaps allowing you to like really be pulled out of it and look towards some of these ex- existential sort of issues of, of life and living and our place within the universe. Because I mean, it, it is a representation of a lot of these things. And how are we moving forward? What are we doing to preserve this? And what aren't we doing to preserve this? So it can get awfully heavy real fast. And uh, it's kind of a deeper sort of sense. It's, inter- it's interesting. It's a juxtaposition between these two worlds, like living in the now, seeing this, being struck by the wonder of it all, but then also as I just said, I mean, some of these bigger, heavier issues. This, this somehow comes down to stuff that we discussed before. Because at the end of the day, you know, we talk about the science and how to challenge these things and how to raise these questions. We also talk about uh, being a kid and, and all of this. And somehow is kind of related, meaning uh, uh, kids always have the most absurd, hilarious, incredible deeply impossible to answer questions. Like, how do I explain him this now? Does that make sense? I wonder if a part of me, a part of all these things I tell you that I do, is keeping alive a little bit of the Peter Pan on myself. And ask yourself a really stupid, totally irrelevant question about something in the hope that that leads to something which actually is incredibly relevant to the humankind. If that makes sense, how do you keep the balance of the professional science with all the methodology while keeping the inside yourself alive and um, how to balance these two things because I think that is probably the key isn't it yeah well I think it is exactly I mean that that's what you were just speaking of earlier you know sometimes your your world as well again within the science world you would think that would be quite elastic in thinking at times like pushing boundaries and challenging assumptions but I think human nature at times, we we don't. We don't necessarily do that. We like our structures and routines, and sometimes that can be helpful, but other times that can kind of hold us back and, uh, you know, prevent us from finding solutions to some of these very complex problems that we're faced with because we're just not looking for them. But when we can step out and, and see what we are doing, we can challenge some of these assumptions. And, and maybe that, you know, what you're just speaking of there, children's questions that push your mind off into a different direction, uh, allow for that. And... Uh, yeah. And sometimes it's very silly, you know? Like, for example, you may ask yourself, who the hell invented chocolate? Interestingly, if you look into it, you will go through through European bakers mixing dairy with something which just arrived from another country, which they attributed bitter, which somebody got from a culture, which got it from another culture, which got it from another culture. And besides, in the sidelines, there is all these histories which are incredibly sad, incredibly funny, incredibly surprising, incredibly fascinating, and and actually tastes amazing, doesn't it? Um, so, so a very stupid question can really open you a way of explaining everything around you, including your history, with the mistakes and the amazing things that has. So, so all of this, I think, is really really relevant to us because in the process of reviewing all these things, we review past, future, present, and then all sorts of things from sensorial things to political issues to to human creativity, you name it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, with some of these thoughts in mind here, you know, in, in talking of climate change in particular, we've spoken about that a little bit. I think for a lot of people, it would like it, it's easy to think like that would probably be the biggest threat that you know plant biodiversity is facing right now land use policies you know politics being involved there a lot of those issues but i think too you know in researching this a little bit more there's this other threat especially for the, some of the rarest and most endangered forms of plants which is this notion of wealthy collectors you know hiring plant hunters if you will that are going out within these these regions of the world and just taking whatever they need and obviously you know there's going to be ramifications for that and that's a point that we could uh, just really briefly explore here i mean there is a, there has been always a market for the strange and the rare and the and the and the things that basically the economy cannot produce like a 500 year old cycad from south africa you cannot make that up. You have to take it from a place in where there is some numbers which are limited, you know? And sometimes uh, it goes to crazy 
crazy legos, like people hiring helicopters and, and bribing couriers and, and perhaps even shooting people which is trying to defend them, you know, like park rangers and stuff like this. There has been always uh, a lot of issues with this. Mostly things like orchids, cactus, succulents. Um, besides that, there is also some technical issues, you know, because when you are stealing a plant, are you stealing a species or an specimen? Meaning, if traditionally, for example, there was, there was these concepts like banana republics, uh, pineapple wars, and what is the importance of potato in the Irish economy? Did it cause a famine? Was it used by the English Empire? Yes, no, maybe answers on a postcard. If that makes sense. But behind this, there has been always two, a position of I obtain one plant and therefore I can exercise some power, being uh, related to like feeding low-paid workers, to paying for something really uh, unique, which I can only taste. Does, does that make sense? So there is the plant collector too, but there is the, the, the biological sourcing. This has then have this issue, which many countries are defensive on this, so then they put regulations and layers of complexity and bureaucracy, which actually when you try to do conservation, you can't, because you have to leverage all these things and policies and things which have been put into place for a totally different reason than what you are intending to do, which is basically, you see this thing, it has 1,000 branches. I'm going to cut half of one, put it in a bag, put it here and make a thousand trees. But instead you have to comply with all of this, which sometimes means complying with politics and also with perhaps perceptions and also perhaps with international regulation, also with the biohazard risk involved into this because you will introduce a pest and cause a famine somewhere um, or a massive economic devastating pest. So it's just funny how this thing of putting a seed in your pocket can end up, mm. you know, Causing is like rather than the butterfly effect, it's like the potato uh, nuclear explosion, if that makes sense. Like a small thing can cause a big steel. So, so that only denotes actually, yes, another power of the plant, isn't it? Mm. I, I can see how a lot of this work is meaningful to you on a lot of different levels. You know, one, your, your work within Q, but then also getting out into the real world and, and seeing some of these issues firsthand, you know, maybe plant species that are moving towards extinction, also probably some success stories as well that maybe, maybe that have evolved out of places like Kew, you know, how to, to propagate some of these plants and, and hopefully get them back within the wild. I'm sure these types of things are happening all the time. But in terms of, I guess, like a story related to some of this, we do have this segment, a you know, water cooler story segment. I understand, again, this passion that maybe at times you put yourself in, in harm's way, perhaps for some of this, this mission. Do you have a story for us in, in terms of that, that illustrates that point? One of the first things that comes to mind on this is, is you know, situations that you are, that you put yourself in, like, gosh, you know, I could have died on this one. Which I must say, I don't think is like a common occurrence on my work. Um, and sometimes I even detect that there is an appetite for people putting themselves into, into territories where you know, it can get quite scary and then being able to say, how brave I am. Well, actually, in most of these situations I put myself, I think I wasn't brave at all, if that makes sense. Like, I was probably really worried. <laughs> if that makes sense, it's not about... Basically, being brave is not going to spare you from a five-meter crocodile if he's hungry. It's the opposite. Being, being, being a bit of a cobard will spare you from that. Um, so... Besides things like, uh, I don't know, flying in Australia, a rotor of a helicopter starts going to, 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 and the whole thing goes tipping, and then you look at the guy and he's like, oh, mm -hmm. oh, taking off on a few planes in the Amazonian area which have sparks on the wheels, and the whole thing even has some flares on the wheel, and you don't know what is going to happen when you land in the other place, which is actually right, in the middle. Right. And all these things, which maybe a lot of people will find super funny, but I don't. Uh, it's just that at the end of the day, what I'm trying to say in here is that I just want to get from A to B, get stuff and go back. I don't want the drama <laughs> or the kind of challenge of making this difficult. And I think in my case, there is this thing, which because I like water lilies, if I see a water lily and I have permission or I have uh, the ways of, you know, getting the paperwork process and things, 
I really want to get data collected. But then obviously, uh, what is a very dangerous place? Well, actually, it's a very kind of relaxing and, and fascinating place, but it, it can be also dodgy. Basically, what I'm saying here is that drop yourself in the Amazon after seeing that in this place there is dolphins four meters long and crocodiles three meters long and there is all sorts of fish from fish that can bury your skin to things that can eat you a finger to fish that eat stuff and that's like a of a slap can break your ribs. The water is dark. You cannot see it. You don't know how deep it is, but here you go. Here I go. And it's interesting how sometimes you do this like, boom, with no lateral thinking and not thinking back. And sometimes you are getting yourself in the water and you are shaking. And picture this. If I tell you to get yourself in a very quiet billabong in Australia with the water up to your knees or jump into the Amazon, which is a river which is several kilometers wide and there is these fishes that can go three meters long, what do you think your life will be more at stake? We'll probably think that it's the Amazon River with all this dark water and all these many different insects and bugs and things, isn't it? Well, it is not. It is Australia. You know, there is, there is an animal there which considers you to be breakfast. It's not impressed at all by the fact that you're a human. A four-meter crocodile can swallow your head with achieving it. This is what we are talking about. They can topple a horse, and basically your death will be... They do this kind of coiling in which they will snap your back into several places, leaving you paralyzed. And if they are not very hungry, they will put you under a stump of a tree and let you there to rot for a few days until they will eat you. So it's not anything to be taken lightly and also has many other implications, you see? Like, let's say that if I was going to be eaten in a national park in Australia by a crocodile, that will have to mobilize a lot of resources, such as helicopters, trying to locate where I am, where is my corpse, travel insurances, you bloody name it, and it's going to stress a lot of people in Australia and my family. It's not to be taken, yes, it's not just your survival thing, what is at stake in here, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, it goes beyond. Um, you may say it a present, meaning that the next person who wants to collect water lilies will never get a permit in case he gets eaten by a crocodile. You know? So basically, how do you handle this? So basically, you have to use your brain around it. You know, you have to basically, there are locations in which the there is crocodiles, there are other ones that there is no evidence that there is, but it is likely, there is other ones that it is unlikely, but it's still possible, and there are some where, therefore, there is going to be just water crocodiles, which they will only maybe rip your arm if you get close to the nest, but they wouldn't see you as breakfast, if you know what I mean. So then when you are collecting species, you try to find these locations where you can find these species in a safer way. But what happens when there is a water lily, which only grows in a place, and in this place is the place where there is the record of the biggest crocodile I'll ever get ever on planet. And that you see how they have done already a road. And then you realize how you have already one water lily, which was only known from one location. And if it wasn't because somebody collected, it will be extinct. And it is also so nice looking. Everything adds up. It's dependent in one location. It also, why not? Let's say it gets your eye going. It's very unusual. It's quite unique, which makes maybe perhaps the distinction even more dramatic, if you like. And then your, your right side of the brain is telling you, in this place, there is saltwater crocodiles. In fact, the biggest one was got hunt out of this pond. The second biggest one got, got out of that pond maybe seven years before. And somebody which is with me is like, I cannot see anything today, but the last time I was here, it was reading with them. So what do you do? You know, so in that case, I started being rational about it. You know, the water is clear and transparent. The place is not very deep. From safety to getting the plant, there is about like two meters, so I only need to eat 20 seconds. Everybody else is like a coir. No, no, and no means no. And then you go like, yeah, but, you know, we haven't come here all the way to this, and now you're going to tell me that. And then, basically, my brain starts thinking and operating on, like, if I'm out in there, I get attacked by a crocodile, I wouldn't regret it for the rest of my life, because probably my life is over. But if I just listen to these two folk, and then I just go away, I... I think it was extinct. I will really want to shut myself. I, I see you know, getting pulled in a few different directions here. You know, emotionally speaking, like the, this passion for what you're doing and what you want to see and what you want to uncover, but then also to having these issues of 
you know, some some hairy moments. And, and also, too, I, I guess this notion of, you know, trust in others, you know, experts around you. Well, likely that, that they shouldn't be around you. Likely. Like, I don't I don't know how reassuring those words would be for myself. Like, I know. That and doesn't thing, add a whole lot. But uh, I think I think even though you are a scientist, you start kind of casting the what's the name? Uh, looking at the at the at the tea deposits on the bottom of your bowl or, or shaking some bones to try to get an omen. I start coming up with things like, but look at the ducks. They are already sleeping. They wouldn't be sleeping that, that nice if they were afraid that the crocodile was going to snap them. And somebody says, like, that doesn't make a difference. Somebody says, like, well, actually, that is a very good point. Oh, okay. And I started to do the movies yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then I, I came up with, a, it was funny because, interestingly, I work for Kew Gardens. And everything we do, we have to do a health and safety risk assessment. Mm, okay. So this is the most real health and risky safety assessment I have to ever do. What's the risk of getting eaten by a crocodile in Northwest Australia while collecting water lilies? <laughs> and how all this stuff I say applies to this situation right now. So the interesting thing is that they managed to convince them. And actually, there was this place that it was fence in one corner and a tree has fallen down. And then you could see the clear waters. There was no crocodile there. There was an overhanging eucalypt. Somebody went in there. He was watching so to see if there is something coming under the water. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, get in there. Oh my God, look at this and look at that. And everybody's get out of the water now. Get out, get out. And then get whatever I need and then run, run. And I made it. And then we just drag ourselves into the into the car, which has some aircon and kind of like drive, like, and go to a place that they have ice cream and pizza. And then kind of like rehydrate ourselves in there with cans of coke, pizza and stuff as first aid kit. With the water in the back. In terms of this this topic, this you know, within the context of these stories here, water lily, and uh, maybe in this last segment here, this this uh, crystal ball segment, we could speak about this a little bit really quickly too. You know, I understand that uh, you've had a hand in protecting one of the smallest water lilies, uh, you know, mm-hmm. within the world, and then also two discovering one in 2020, the one of the largest, or if not the largest, water lily. So within the context of, of this segment in the future, moving forward, you know, we're, we're still here. What, 2023, this is being recorded in, and what, 2020, you, you discovered the world's largest water lily. I mean, it's fascinating under that sense that we are still, you know, finding these new species out there at this point. But in the context of this conversation, all we've spoken about already, you know, climate change, everything that's going on around us. What would what, what's your take moving forward on all of this plant biodiversity moving forward? Uh, your role within it? I know this is a big question. I'm asking a lot here, but uh, you know, what would you say to this? Many things. I think something which to me is fascinating of this is that probably one of the most amazing plant species that exists on planet Earth, a water lily with eight square meters, which got collected for the first time about. 200 years ago, and nobody spotted it, and that I could see on Google Maps, and we didn't know it existed, even though perhaps generations and generations of indigenous people seen it. Many big names on the history of natural science had seen it, and then it's there. Yeah, amazing. It, 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 it's just incredible. It's amazing. It's like, I, I, imagine what you will find the size of a of a moss, you know, on a stone on a mountain that totally nobody has walked. If that makes sense, if this thing was was there for everybody to see, and none of them has seen it, because it's interesting how you mentioned the word discovery, and then I think this is a very interesting word, um, because with this with this particular case, it made me really think a lot about what discovery is. Um, because, you know, in a way you have the nasty sense of discovery when somebody comes and then pretends to discover a country with six million people on it and then comes back to the last that uh, he found it. Has this kind of colonial connotations and perhaps a bit of an overstatement. So there you go. That is the first part of discovery, which is discovering for whom? Because it could be for the human species, but also it could be for a civilization or for a single culture or for a big... And then also, or discover for yourself. Because when you're a kid, you are discovering things all the time which everybody knows. But you didn't. 
So, so what a discovery is. So then our first reflection is that discovery is the first folk which goes somewhere and gets to where somebody else has arrived. And he was the first one that seen it. Totally wrong. Because even though you may be the first person or the first human that seen it, if you haven't realized what it is, what you have seen it, then you have not discovered it. You have just stumbled upon it. Discovery starts when you actually say, well, what the hell is you? It makes sense. So what is this? Or why is this here? Or why this is a square? You know, you ask yourself a question. And then because nobody else has done it before, then you start discovering all these other sci-fi because the discovery is never one. It's a satellite and connections of many different things, which then come with a, this is a thing, right? And then have you discovered it? No, because history demonstrates, and in this particular plant species happened, that it was actually the first giant water lily seen by any Western scientist was this one. It's just a... He, by historical quirk, basically, Spain got invaded. It was a Spanish expedition. The botanist was Czech. But then Napoleon invades Spain. Then revolutions and independences start in Latin America. He joins them. He never comes back to Spain. And therefore, he stops doing science. And we know that he recorded it in a diary. And then he brought the location and he drew it. So obviously, he had seen it. But he couldn't come up back to tell us. And by us, I don't mean, in that case, the Spanish Empire, I mean us, the humans. Because if I found that water really for the first time and realized that it's different, well, that happens actually about 13 years ago, and then it wasn't discovered. Because I know it, but I don't know how to explain it to you. And once I explain it to you, I will have to demonstrate it. And that is the final bit of validation of what a discovery is. It's not that you went there, realize it, quantify it, and demonstrate it, actually, it gets discovered when you lot, everybody else is reading what I have to say, you actually buy it. And then that thing now becomes a thing for me too. If that makes sense? Then it becomes a part of the collective mind. So therefore it gets discovered. You know, because it's just like it was there, but then there was some curtains, and then somebody says curtains up, and everybody's in it. And then even you, if you see one in but, I don't know, Brazil or something, and you read my paper, you will be able to realize what you are looking at that. How you can communicate it to other people and then they understand that apples are apples and peers are peers. So, 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 that, that to me was a bit mind-blowing to realize that a discovery is not exactly what I think may be and that until the rest of the world has accepted it, then you have done nothing. It's just your thing. Now it's, it's, it's a thing. It is a, and you can challenge it. You can say I am wrong, but you will have to make some creating a new reality and convince all of us. So it kind of reality thing it gets discovered somehow by consensus. Yeah, I mean, like you, you can really get into the weeds with all of this. I mean, again, pardon the pun there, but I mean, it, it's a world I don't think that a lot of people fully understand. I mean, that's a world of discovery for one. What you're just speaking of there, I mean, it's really quite fascinating when you break it down from that perspective, and then also maybe in the same sense frustrating at times too, but. It, it is, it is. And actually, I think we somehow have turned it a little bit into a dirty world because the, the kind of historical, colonial thing. But I refuse to think I will die on that hill. If there is something wrong with discovery, then I think we are done as species. And morally and, and politically, we are basically assassinating kids if discovery is wrong. Children will die. There is nothing wrong about discovery. Discovery should be always encouraged. And of course, discovery should happen with whatever you want it to happen, but it should never prevent it. It should always encourage it, especially because the conclusion I had with all of this, that discovery is more about everybody getting a consensus that this thing is a thing. If that makes sense. Yeah, I like that. When you discover something, then you can understand it. When you discover something, then you can study it. When you discover something, then you can explain it. You can make it a children's book character. You can use it as a medicine. You can compose a point. You can invent a new color, make a new painting. I don't know. But that is really the, the fabric and the basis of, of not only humanity, but also our 
our understanding of why we are here and what this is all about. It's kind of basically no no discovery, no science, no much of a point. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where, to a certain degree, that's where hope comes from, I think, is a lot of that. I think hope and discovery are, are very closely aligned in that sense. And uh, yeah, without without either of the two, I mean, we, we, we're right. You're right. I mean, we're, we're doomed otherwise, you know, so like. Those are those are elements yeah, that we yeah, need yeah, to have yeah, built yeah. in within our you know our, our, our paradigms of how we examine the world, how we interact with it. Are, are those two elements? And you know, we, we, with that in mind, I mean, like maybe that's kind of a nice point to uh, to kind of close things off. I, I've got to say, Carlos, I mean, it's been such an engaging talk, and I've really enjoyed a lot of the discussion, the story, everything that you've shared today. And you know, again, really conscious of your time, and uh, you know, thank you immensely for it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, for those interested in learning more about Carlos and his work, I mean, he has his book. You can check that out, The Plant Messiah. He's also on social media as well. You can find him on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And for reference, I will have links to all of these within the show notes. And I mean, if you like today's show, please be sure to share. And then finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. Thank you.